Truth Espresso, episode 184. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Truth Espresso. Well, unless this is the first episode that you're listening to, in that case, welcome to the first episode of Truth Espresso that you're listening to. Welcome, friend, family, foe, and lurker alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, along with my sweet, beautiful wife and co-host, Chelsea. We are going to interrupt what we thought we were going to talk about last week, because we didn't know that Friday was going to be a big thing, and so we figured we should talk a little bit about what just happened on Friday, June 24th, 2022, in that the Supreme Court finally handed down its uh, long-awaited decision on the Dobbs versus Jackson case that explicitly and effectively overturned Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And so we want to talk about that for a little bit, talk about what it means, what it doesn't mean, and how we should should think about it and moving forward in a post-row world. And so, sweetheart, Chelsea, welcome back to Truth Espresso. Thank you for doing this with me again. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me, babe. And so, let's look at some snippets from the decision and some of the opposition. So, I want to look at what some of the, the decision actually says and what the dissent claims that this ruling, that this decision is doing and why they think what the grounds were for it, what it gets wrong, and also some of the reactions to the end of Roe and see where we go from here because there's a little bit of complexity with constitutionality and stuff but just to make sure that we as christians understand what this means and what it doesn't mean because there's a lot of hype out there where some people think this means that the supreme court has basically banned abortion and that's certainly not the case mm. so pro-abortionists are outraged because they think this essentially bans abortion that the supreme court's being activist on this and then some pro-lifers will think that hey well it banned abortion so that means that we won the war and that's definitely not the case <laughs> Yeah. So we want to realize that the end of Roe is really a beginning of, I would say, a stronger battle against abortion. The battle, the war is going to get even more heated. So what did the Dobbs ruling say? that I'd like to point out, it says, basically at the beginning, it says, quote, held, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives, unquote. So basically, that summarizes what this ruling is. So it says the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion, 
And with the understanding of the Supreme Court, when it's referring to the Constitution, it's talking about the federal document referring to the rights that the federal government recognizes that the people or the states have, that it's the job of the federal government to enforce. And so this Supreme Court, with the decision authored by Justice Samuel Alito, is saying that the text of the Constitution and a proper understanding of it does not in any way explicitly or implicitly grant a right to abortion that the states must then uphold or enforce. And so the cases that were attempting to use the Constitution and find a right to abortion in the Constitution there, that those cases are overruled because they did not really argue correctly (laughs) that abortion could be inferred in the language of the Constitution. It's interesting, too, because when you look at the Constitution, it says that there's a fundamental right to life. (laughs) Yes. And abortion is the fundamental right to killing an unborn child. So it is interesting that they're thinking somehow the Constitution supports their argument, (laughs) which I liked your title. We'll have to go with this someday, your title suggestion for going with what is abortion? Oh, oh yeah, because we'll probably do another episode since we were in Pride Month and I mean, I guess, as we said, this ruling is not the be-all, end-all of things. There's a lot of misunderstanding of it, but it's kind of neat that we have some kind of positive thing coming out here toward the end of Pride Month, you know. So, on Thursday, there was the ruling that affirmed the Second Amendment, you know, right to carry or to bear arms. I know we could get into technical details about that, about... You know, because some people will say, well, the Constitution, the Second Amendment just means that the Constitution won't interfere with the states on that. So maybe that ruling was technically wrong, but the Constitution is explicit about the right of the people to keep and bear arms not being infringed. That's so obvious, you know, but Roe and Casey would trying to go on a fishing expedition to figure out a right to abortion there. It just seems obvious here. Just like, well, that's obvious in Thursday's ruling against the New York law, and then now Friday, the ruling against um, Jackson Women's Health upholding Dobbs there that the Constitution does not explicitly grant a right to abortion that would be enforced at the federal level. So with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, what kind of happens next? Does that mean abortion's totally gone, like no one can have an abortion. Like you mentioned, the pro-choice people are thinking, okay, this is a sad day. This is a horrible day for women because they just lost the right in access to abortions. And the pro-life people are like cheering and saying, yay, abortion has ended. So yeah, that's kind of wrong. (laughs) But What are your thoughts? Can you describe a little bit about what happens? Where does it go now with Roe v. Wade being overturned? (laughs) Yeah, so basically with Roe v. Wade, 
Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which basically upheld Roe. Those being overruled just basically goes back to before Roe, where abortion was a matter for the states to legislate. And that's what the ruling actually says, that the decision on abortion, whether to make it a so-called right or to ban it or regulate it, wholly goes back to the states. So I know a lot of people really don't understand federalism much today, especially because you don't really get that much, you know, in a public school education to explain federalism and the history of it. But the United States did not start off as this big contiguous blob, you know, (laughs) where, you know, to use a term that I've heard Tom Woods use. So, you know, instead of thinking of the United States as a blob, it's called the United States plural for a reason it was a it's a collection of societies a collection of states a compact among states in which the states formed the union you know there were people in the 1800s that then tried to talk about how the federal government created the states or that the federal government in a sense always existed in some mysterious way but the states were first as independent societies and then when they formed first with the Articles of Confederation which ultimately didn't get adopted but then the Constitution it's a compact among the states that the states had to ratify and they essentially agreed to this document like okay will yield certain powers that we possess to this compact, to this constitution, to this federal government. We'll agree to that, but we have the right to withdraw if we feel that it's not going to work out. Or as Thomas Jefferson said, that you know the right to nullify federal laws, and he even recognized that the Supreme Court could not be the ultimate <laughs> arbiter of whether a law was constitutional, since it's part of the same beast, you know, of the federal government. The checks and balances are not just among the three branches, but it also involves the states versus the federal government. So the Constitution is a compact among the states. And so what it is basically saying is here are the rights that the compact recognizes that it would not interfere with the state. So I know we often, even when we read the Bill of Rights, we think that it's something that the federal government is granting to the people, but basically it's saying we recognize these are rights that the people already possess by nature and from nature's God. (laughs) And it's saying Congress or the federal government that the states have created will not interfere in this. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not granting like the federal government as kind of a quasi God is granting you this right from on high. You know, it's just saying the federal government won't interfere with this. It's not even necessarily saying that member states might not have their own legislation that might even go against some of what these Bill of Rights are. I mean, often people misunderstand that, like the right of free speech, you know, technically you shouldn't really think of it that it's something that a state must enforce. You know, it's it's intrinsic to nature, but it's also just saying here, the federal government is not allowed to interfere with that, right? Mm-hmm. So, with Roe and Casey, with this ruling here, it's basically just saying 
the Supreme Court erred in the way it ruled in Roe as if it could then enforce some kind of right to an abortion as if it was constitutional because Roe tried to argue first from really twisting American history (laughs) and then trying to say, yeah, I think we see this right to an abortion somewhere here. Let's reach into the bag and figure out where it is. You know, I think it's here. Maybe it's here (laughs) and so on. But, you know, it's here somewhere. And then with that, basically, as the decision in Dobbs says, you know, that Roe, the ruling in Roe basically made the Supreme Court like a legislative body to give the trimester structure and basically force the states to have to adapt its laws to what the Supreme Court's opinion did with abortion and the three trimesters and viability. So overturning this decision, overturning Roe and Casey just takes the decision, the matter of abortion, and sends it back to the states where it says that power actually belongs. With the people voting, they vote for their representatives, they might vote for amendments to their state constitution, laws, whatever, but it's up to the states, their people, through legislative actions. Legislative, and not through a court, especially the Supreme Court, to determine So it's back to the states and the people, not to the federal government. That's really all this decision is saying. (laughs) Hope that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that was a great history lesson and understanding of how things are set up. And so basically, now each state can decide what their regulations or limitations or ban on abortion is going to be. And as of the ruling on Friday, I've seen anywhere from 22 to 26 Mm. states that have put some sort of ban or really strict limitation on abortions, which is definitely a huge move for our history. And just seeing like after close to 65 million babies have been aborted, and that's just an estimate. I know we've talked about this before that there's not really clear data on how many abortions have happened because not all states are required to report, not all doctors report anyways. <laughs> and um, yeah. with yeah, the RU486 now, that's definitely underreported. So we don't know, but around 65 million is a good estimate of babies that have been killed through an abortion procedure since Roe v. Wade. And now, hopefully, with these 22 to 26 states that have been putting limitations and restrictions on that, that's going to help reduce the number of abortions, but this does not eliminate abortions. And I think that's something that we wanted to kind of clarify here is that we've seen a lot of people on both sides, the pro-choice again and the pro-life people, seeing this as like abortion is not going to happen. And that's just not true. We know abortion is going to happen and it is happening. Doctors are still able to prescribe abortion pills and send it in the mailbox to you. And there's states like ours in Colorado that have put into effect before the ruling that they are going to be an abortion state where women can come and have an abortion And we know California recently just clarified their abortion law to say that you can have an abortion up to 28 days after delivery. So a baby can be one month old 
and you can still decide to kill that baby. <laughs> and okay, I those are disgusting, horrible laws. But I know we mentioned this before too. But just to reiterate, Colorado did not put any age restriction on when an abortion is not legal. Mm, yeah. So that opens the door for an abortion to happen at any time. So, okay, 28 days, yes, that's atrocious. That's horrible. Yeah. But after 28 days, you can't technically in California. But in Colorado, they don't even want to put the limit on 28 days. They're saying each situation is so different that it's up to determine if the baby has the right to live with the mom and her doctor. Hmm. And so that can happen at any time. Yeah. So, yes, like you said, babe, this is just the beginning of a bigger battle that we're going to see and roe v wade is not the elimination of abortion it's the elimination of confusion that roe v wade was somehow allowing abortions and that was not the case we could have eliminated abortions long before Mm, this (laughs) we did not need roe v wade to be overturned yes we need Christians, mm-hmm. people that are willing to stand up and fight for the life of these unborn babies and fight for these women and their lives and teach them that they are valued and that they are loved and that abortion is going to destroy them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you saw this on some of the social media and stuff, some of the arguments that are kind of going on with the discussion around Roe v. Wade. And a lot of people are, I mean, we can kind of tie this into our What is a Woman <laughs> series we started, but a lot of people are frustrated that it was five men that ruled on the Roe v. Wade. <laughs> so oh, the yeah. majority that ruled were men. So <laughs> yeah. men are like, oh, women must suffer being pregnant. It's like, okay, no, these men are being men Hmm. and standing up for the lives of these children, standing up for the lives of these women, protecting Hmm. women from the harmful effects of abortion. Hmm. So, no, they're not oppressing women. They're actually protecting women. Wasn't it a majority, you know, in row that were men anyway, too? So, Oh, (laughs) Well, but that was back in the 70s. We've progressed from there, (laughs) is the argument I saw. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So we can accept that (laughs) those were true men back at Roe, but now these are, you know, oppressive, far-right conservative men in this Supreme Court and so on, you know. yeah. (laughs) But look at their new appointee who cannot define what What a woman woman is. is. And, okay, how is she supposed to logically stand up for women's rights if she can't even define what a woman is? Yeah. Like, it just yeah. doesn't even make sense. And it's interesting that the dissent in here doesn't seem to get into the weeds with all with the language about birthing people and stuff. It, you know, because now we're dealing with the issue of abortion and this ruling, the dissent uses woman, 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 woman. <laughs> Good job, justices. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the dissent from the, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I want to look at a little bit from the dissent and how it misunderstands the ruling here. So who exactly writes the dissents? Oh, you know, one of the minority ones there. Um, And now I'm trying to remember which justice was the one whose name is on the dissent there. But the dissent was Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
if I remember their names correctly. <laughs> so on page two of the dissent, it says, referring to the court in the ruling, it says, quote, it says that from the very moment of fertilization, a woman has no rights to speak of, unquote. So it's basically trying to say, okay, this ruling in effect is saying that once a woman becomes pregnant, you know, from the moment of conception, a woman then has no rights to speak of. <laughs> Like, uh, I don't see where the ruling says that because the ruling's focused on the unborn and the arguments about that. The differing opinions on abortion that leads to the idea that, well, it should be up to the states. So I want to look at a, just a technicality with that. Well, from a constitutional perspective, referring to federalism from a constitutional perspective, the Constitution itself, the federal government, shouldn't be determining whether a woman in particular has rights that the federal government grants. You know, it's just out of the purview of the federal government to grant rights in particular to women or men. You know, it's just to recognize what rights human citizens have by virtue of God and nature and in the states and so on, and not to explicitly grant rights to individual men or women, you know, to say this class of people, women, have rights as women recognized by the federal government to do X or Y, you know. So that, under that technicality, you say, okay, and your point is, <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> but wait, you can't say women can do X or Y. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> making a joke there. They can only do X and X. Yes. Okay. And men could do X and Y. Yes. Okay. There you go. Good job. <laughs> We're on the same wavelength there. Good job there, babe. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd say first, the Constitution is a federal document granting powers to the federal government as a compact among the states is not supposed to grant rights explicitly to individual men as men or women as women per se. You know, hope that makes sense what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to be an ogre here. I'm just trying to point out the purpose and the purview of the federal government. And second, of course, the statement wants to treat pregnancy as a curse intentional, intentionally imposed on women rather than how nature works apart from any government institution, you know. Because, like, just think, without government, if we didn't have an institution of government, this is just the way biology and nature naturally works. You know, it's not up to a government to recognize so-called rights related to pregnancy as such and to grant someone, as the federal government, what someone can do with their pregnancy. That's just not the arena of the federal government. <laughs> Well, and I was thinking that it was God that ordained, <laughs> yes, like pregnancy and procreation, <laughs> yeah. like in Genesis, and yeah. that it was like you said, most people view it as a curse, but <laughs> yeah, and throughout the Bible, you see that pregnancy and childbearing and being able to have children was a blessing. Yeah. You were cursed yeah. if so, you couldn't have children. Yeah. <laughs> And so we have totally <laughs> shifted in um, our view and 
how we look at pregnancy. And I have to say, like, unfortunately, it has infiltrated into the church as well. Like, there are so many Christians that we know who view pregnancy and parenthood as... <laughs> a burden or something that they don't really desire or they want to try and control or they just don't see it as a blessing that mm-hmm. God intended it to be. And yes. it's just sometimes disheartening <laughs> when you see that because there are so many people who can't have children and mm-hmm. they desire to have children. And then you see other people who are constantly getting pregnant and just having abortion after mm-hmm. abortion because they totally disregard that life Mm. and like okay where can we find that balance like these people that are having abortions and getting pregnant why can't we connect them with these families that want to have kids and they can't and yeah yeah. sorry kind of a rabbit trail there (laughs) oh yeah and you know there's much sure the government can do to make adoption not the crazy expensive red tape laden process for those who want to adopt too yeah Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they need to send all the money that they give Planned Parenthood to adoption agencies. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a good that's a good use of taxpayer funding, you know. I mean, more liberty-minded and to say that government shouldn't be taxing the money in the first place. But, yeah, if we already stole that money from people, might as well return it in a way that's life-affirming. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, did I distract you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I'm looking at my next uh, quote here uh, from the dissent. It says, quote, A state can force her to bring a pregnancy to term, even at the steepest personal and familial costs, unquote. This is from page two. And, of course, that's kind of continuing the same argument. But, you know, when you read that, you got to think, like, wait, the state can force her to bring a pregnancy to term. What does that mean, you know? who's forcing a pregnancy you know of course it's thinking by turning things on its head like this is nature at work this is the way nature as god has designed it to work you know you have relations that could result in a pregnancy and as the bible says children are heritages of the lord and that's the way biology works as god designed it but when you think in terms of modern economical structures and think that okay this happened i didn't intend it so it must not happen even though nature intended it <laughs> as god designed it and so instead of looking at it as oh yay we got pregnant we weren't expecting it now we figure out what to do with something we weren't expecting but nature certainly didn't unexpected <laughs> it's not a matter of a state forcing a pregnancy we're talking about the workings of nature and then when mentioning the steepest personal and familiar costs there are programs there are churches there are pregnancy resource centers there are means of dealing with personal and familial costs that don't involve killing someone But, of course, this dissent doesn't even think or consider that. Why would the first option be, like, the only way to care for someone is to grant a legal means of killing the child? You know, like, shouldn't there be other ways to care for the person and care for the child or... 
as we mentioned, adoption, other things like that. There's no forcing a pregnancy and the personal familial costs can be borne in some way other than pretending that somehow this ruling says, okay, hey, you had an abortion, you're legally forced to deal with this on your own, you know? So it's interesting because a lot of people kind of bring that scenario into arguing. I was watching an interview between Kristen Hawkins. She's the president of Students for Life, and she was being interviewed on CNN. And this woman on CNN was very interesting. (laughs) Well, it's CNN. I mean, (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm trying to be nice. (laughs) That's why I call her a woman, not a lady. So, yes, this woman was trying to question Kristen Hawkins about the pro-life stance and in particular saying, okay, with the pro-life stance, then you're saying if a 12-year-old is harmed to where she becomes pregnant, then you're forcing her Hmm. to have to carry that pregnancy. And Kristen Hawkins was like, no, we don't support that crime. We need to have more severe punishment for these people that commit crimes like that. So there will be fewer of those crimes. And I know we talked about this before too, but just how abortion allows for cover up and allows for more of these crimes against young children and young women. Mm -hmm. Because the perpetrator is able to get away with it, and most abortion clinics cover up for them. So girls are being harmed even more because of abortion. And we're not forcing a 12-year-old girl to be pregnant. Okay, she's pregnant. Mm. We didn't force that. Unfortunately, that was a consequence of the trauma that she went through. Our goal is to support her through that and help her get through that because she has been through a lot. Mm -hmm. And abortion is going to, again, just add to that trauma. And so we're trying to limit how much she goes through, come beside her and help her and get her through the situation. Mm. Whereas the abortion is like, oh, let's quick do this quick fix and you're on your own again. Exactly. And we'll just throw you back in the same situation. And yeah, yeah most likely we'll see you again next year. Oh, and we're yeah, not going to say sure. anything. <laughs> okay, how is that helping that young girl? Why is that more caring for these young women hmm. when that is how the pro-abortion people treat these girls? The Christian, the Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ, truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at christianpodcastcommunity.org christianpodcastcommunity.org One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. For 
So first of all, you put the guilt of abortion onto the young girl. Second of all, it's like tampering with evidence. You clear the perpetrators, you said, of wrongdoing by getting rid of the evidence and likely also putting a girl like that back in the situation instead of having <laughs> both the evidence and the means by which to you know convict him of a crime, make him either support or go to jail or something like that, you know. <laughs> So it's kind of like a, a double punch to the girl, punishing the girl and punishing the baby for something that the baby didn't do. And <laughs> we take care of her, we take care of the baby, and we take care of, you know, in another sense of that term, the the one who did the wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. But yeah, so just, I mean, thinking of how people tend to argue that point of that somehow we're forcing someone to stay pregnant or be pregnant and just some of the arguments that you see out there. And that one was one that was hmm. just yeah. <laughs> recent, but... Do you have more from the dissent then? Oh, yeah. So Bill. here's a part of the dissent that deals with the issue of it going back to the state. So mm. it refers to the fact that the ruling mentions that the decision of abortion goes back to the states and it says, quote, that is cold comfort, of course, for the poor woman who cannot get the money to fly to a distant state for a procedure, unquote. So... Okay. Okay. You want to, you want to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about this earlier this evening. So do you recall <laughs> when do most abortions happen? Like what oh, yeah. gestational age? Technically the first trimester, right? And it's right now the majority of abortions are from the abortion pill or are you 46? Yeah. Yeah, and um, what did they and, and with clear. the COVID um, stuff, they made mail-in abortions, you know, buying them online and getting them mailed to you. Yes, and so you don't have to buy a plane ticket or go anywhere to get the procedure. Most of the time, the procedures or the surgical methods of abortion are becoming less common. And like you said, the RU46 or the abortion pill is the most common way of doing abortion now, just because of the easier access to that. Mm -hmm. And I know we talked about it, like it's a little bit more discreet and things like that. And there are programs or grants that people actually pay for the abortion pill. So technically the abortion pill, like a girl could get it. She wouldn't have to pay any money. She can do it right in her home. The issue with some of the states, though, is if she lives in a state that banned abortion, then she technically couldn't have the abortion pill mailed to her address. But there are websites out there that walk girls through how to get around that part of it. Mm. So they're still able to access abortions. They don't have to put this sad story out there that women yeah. have to come up with funds to fly across oh, the yeah. U.S. to get an abortion. Yeah, of course, most people who would want an abortion would likely get it done that way and it would be longer because how many of them are waiting till the second or third trimester and then have to fly out and get a surgical abortion done and so on like that. But 
Of course, most importantly, this question in the dissent is ignoring the question at hand that even the ruling will mention. Of course, I want to mention that the dissent never really talks about what an abortion is and what the unborn are. You know, it's just uh, making assumptions there, but it ignores the question at hand of what is the unborn. So we could do the trot out the toddler argument on this. You know, if a state happened to make murdering a toddler illegal are there some states that do that (laughs) and you know if another state happened to make murdering a toddler legal you know um, which would be tragic of course but hey you mentioned colorado and the technicality of the language of the law who knows but so would the inconvenience of having to fly to a distant state to kill a toddler be a problem (laughs) You know, so it begs the question here, just what are we talking about at hand if we're talking about money to fly for a procedure in a distant state? You know, we have to ask the question, what are they doing and what does it mean? You know, even though, as we mentioned, this is not the Supreme Court banning abortions, but it's talking about states' decisions. The dissent also says, quote, a state can, of course, impose criminal penalties on abortion providers, including lengthy prison sentences, but some states will not stop there. Perhaps in the wake of today's decision, a state law will criminalize the woman's conduct too, incarcerating or fining her for daring to seek or obtain an abortion. And as Texas has recently shown, a state can turn neighbor against neighbor, enlisting fellow citizens in the effort to root out anyone who tries to get an abortion or to assist another in doing so, unquote, (laughs) on page three. So it's kind of like all this, what if this, what if that, we can imagine states might do this or that, and so... It has to be within our grasp as the Supreme Court to enforce this alleged right to an abortion, you know, because those states could be really mean to people, you know, unlike the clandestine, you know, divine federal government and its Supreme Court, you know, but... (laughs) sarcastically <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> I, like, i'm hoping you picked up the sarcasm there. <laughs> so here's my question once again so a state could impose criminal penalties on those who murder people including lengthy prison sentences you know like imagine like what if a state actually imposes criminal penalties on murderers and you know which could include lengthy prison sentences you know Hmm. how many people would raise an eyebrow at that statement (laughs) or is it kind of a given you know so yeah that's going back to the question what is the unborn what is an abortion what are we talking about here when you insert (laughs) other words in there it suddenly becomes and your point is (laughs) okay and then finally i want to get to another point that the dissent makes that is blatantly false as i've read the ruling and part of the dissent here so (laughs) the dissent says quote the lone rationale for what the majority does today is that the right to elect an abortion is not quote unquote deeply rooted in history 
page five of the dissent. So they're saying the dissent is whining, saying that the ruling is making its entire case for why Roe should be overturned based on the argument that abortion rights are not deeply rooted in history. Now, I've read the ruling, and that was only one argument, but it wasn't an argument that the ruling itself came up with. It was based on, okay, looking at starry diseases, looking at other things uh, for court precedent, and they cited a test for implicit constitutional rights that was in Washington versus Glucksburg, and that came up with the test for deeply rooted in history. So, They're talking about court precedent here to say, okay, how do we evaluate if something is indeed a constitutional right, if it's not explicit, like the word abortion is not there? Okay, well, is it implied? Well, one of the tests, according to the Supreme Court in Washington versus Glucksburg, is if it's according to ordered liberty and it's um, deeply rooted in history. So the dissent claiming that this is their sole argument for this is ridiculous. It's one of several arguments. And it wasn't that the court said, hey, just like where Roe came up with a test for, you know, a trimester scheme and legislated from the bench there for determining stuff like viability and stuff. The Dobbs case, Alito didn't say, hey, let's make an argument that our precedent is based on deeply rooted in history. No, this this was from another ruling and they're making the argument that this ruling set a precedent. Now we're going to put that to the test. And so they overwhelmingly made the case that a so-called abortion right is not deeply rooted in history. The contrary is overwhelmingly true. (laughs) That's not the lone rationale there. So the ruling is much more grounded in facts, the text of the Constitution and history than what this dissent whines about. (laughs) The dissent, as I read, is based on desire and what-if arguments. It's kind of more like things might not be rosy for some people if they can't easily get an abortion. Therefore, the court should understand an implicit federal constitutional right to an abortion because we want it. But the ruling very much dived into, made arguments from various court cases. Does the text of the Constitution grant it? No, we don't see that. Does it implicitly grant it? No, it doesn't. Here's a test. Is it deeply rooted in history? What are the arguments for the facts of the unborn that uh, Dobbs makes and so on like that? There are several tiers of arguments. Deeply rooted in history was only one of them, and it wasn't an original argument from this particular court. Okay, so that's a little bit of overview of this decision. And, sweetheart, you have something to say there? You have a verse to share? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was thinking that with the overturning of Roe v. Wade and a lot of the protests, the (laughs) anti-life, yes, people that want to hurt other people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Hmm. Yeah. 
okay, they want to hurt the unborn, so that makes sense that they would want to hurt other people mm, too. Yeah. Sorry. Exactly. You don't <laughs> value the life of the unborn. There's no intrinsic human value. You don't yeah. li- value the life of the born. <laughs> yeah. So just thinking about that, it can be kind of a scary time right now for people that stand up for life and that are pro-life. Uh, we've seen, you know, the violence with the pregnancy centers mm. and some of the churches as well and the protests at the Supreme Court justices' houses and just thinking that this is such an important time that we are in prayer and praying for protection for people that do stand up for truth and stand up for life. And I was thinking of the story of David and Goliath and how David was brave and was the only one that would go and face this giant. And even though he was a young boy and he didn't have his trust or his faith in his slingshot or in the rocks, he trusted in God. And that's kind of where I was thinking this verse kind of reminded me of that. So in Psalm 20, verse 7, it says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So not trusting in the ruling on Roe v. Wade being overturned, that that bans abortion and that our job as pro-life people is over. We're not trusting in what people will do or say or what goes on. We need to trust in God because we know that he is our protector. We know that he is the ultimate victor over all of this. And uh, we just really need to pray for protection and wisdom and just uh, coming together as a community and standing up for life. Yes, definitely, sweetheart. And as we said, this is not the end. This is the beginning. It's not the time to rest on your laurels. This is a victory, but it's a small victory. And you did say, sweetheart, before that technically states could have made abortion legal. Roe really wasn't binding, constitutionally speaking. I know there is that looming threat, you know, lawsuits and stuff like that, because you have a battle, you know, anytime, just like with Texas had, you know, it's like, oh, you can't do that. Let's sue, you know, stuff like that. So there's the battle, but technically speaking, states always retained that power. And Roe was kind of a smokescreen, but still, it is a victory that we have that clarity now, but (laughs) this is just the beginning. No rest on laurels. Christians, now you should understand, you need to study and understand what it's about, what it's at stake, what's really going on, what the issue is about. Make the case for life persuasively speaking the truth in love. Be willing to talk to people. The fight against abortion, the killing of the unborn and the killing of anyone else is not something that's just fought at the ballot box. That's not what it's about. It's about education. It's about talking to people, persuading people with truth. You have to be able to make the arguments. You have to learn. You have to be educated. This really is a war of education and truth. And so now it's time to use the grassroots. It starts with you talking to your neighbor, to, you know, your friends, your family, deal with your state. And I know in Colorado, we have quite the battle ahead. 
And so the issue being relegated from the federal court back to the states is really just back to the drawing board in a sense. And so now it's time to fight at the state level. for the hearts and minds of people. And so abortion's always going to be done, you know, underground, as some people try to argue. So it's a matter of persuading people of why abortions are wrong, turning people from pro-abortion to pro-life, pro-Bible, you know, pro-Christian truth, pro-gospel. So regardless of Roe is in effect or not, we always need to keep in mind a verse like Deuteronomy 21.9 that says, So shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. And so regardless of the government structure, there's <laughs> the battle against abortion is always there. And we have to be active <laughs> yes. in it. Like you said, not just sitting back, but being like David and trusting in God, picking up the sling and the five stones and getting out there and actually doing the work. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Because even some people who might be against abortion, they think politically, it's like they might be like David's older brothers (laughs) saying, you know, I know the haughtiness of your heart to someone who's ready to take on the battle and say, you know, you came out here so you could see the battle, you know, when they're too afraid to go up and take on the Goliath there of abortion. So, yes. (laughs) So, yes. Keep heart. Take the victory as a starting point that we need to be ever more vigilant because the battle's only going to get bigger from here on. And so, thank you for listening to this episode of Truth Espresso. I hope that this was an encouragement, an enlightenment with really what's going on and a challenge in the fight against abortion because it's going to get ugly. (laughs) And so, stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso, and God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.